Uh, we're going through Romans 11 at the, uh, at the moment, and I've been given this wonderful passage. Um, whatever Erica says, I can trump it in terms of the passage she had. This is a great one. We're going to read the end of Romans 11 from verse 25 uh, through to, well, it's the end of the, the passage, 36. Uh, it's entitled, All Israel Will Be Saved, which in itself becomes quite contentious for some believers. So... Uh, will enjoy this, I think, this morning. <laughs> I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience... So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy on you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments had his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So this is the end of these three chapters. Chapters 9, 10 and 11 in Romans. Which is a discourse of God's plan for Israel. Uh, for the Jewish nation. And now we've had some fantastic inspirational uh, preaching the last couple of weeks. But if we're honest, we possibly haven't gripped the context of this passage, perhaps in the way we ought to, because it is rather difficult for us to understand. We really, um, you know, it's not an issue that we, we cha are challenged by in our society so much today, you know, what happens to the Jews. <laughs> it's not something that is this, the forefront of everyone's mind. But this was the big issue for Paul. There were other issues um, that were happening in the church, but the big issue was the issue of how Jewish do we have to be to be followers of Jesus? That sounds bizarre to us today, doesn't it? How much do we have to conform to a Jewish pattern of worship, of obedience to a law, of uh, this, you know, of, of the customs and the and and the and the, the character of Jewish religion in order to be fully, you know, Christian, to be accepted. So I'm going to start with a timeline. I wish I'd put this on a PowerPoint. I'm sorry, I've had a busy week. This is because this might be a bit to pin back your lug holes. But in order for us to really understand Romans, we need to get a grip of a timeline. 
You need to put yourself in a different world without mobile phones, without televisions, without radios, without the post service even, without any sort of uh, uh, publications, without books being, uh, being made. This is in an age when communication took a lot longer, a lot of it was verbal, some of it was written, but it was handwritten. And it was much, it, change took an awful lot of time. It didn't happen overnight. I think that sometimes when we read what happened at the Council of Jerusalem in AD 50, and we'll come to that, we think, oh, well, that was it then. They'd made the decision, it was all sorted out. It was AD 90, 40 years later, when the Jews finally kicked the Christians out of the synagogues. And this is the, this, this tension between being a Jewish Christian, being a Gentile Christian, is what you will read throughout Paul's letters, right? So, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, there are a massive crowd there of, of, of Jews who've come from all the nations of the Roman Empire. And it says in verse 10 that there were visitors from Rome among them. 3,000 believers... <coughs> It's, it's believed that some of these were believers who had come from Rome and went back to Rome. In those days, you know, the phrase, all roads lead to Rome, was actually true. They did. Uh, and essentially, Rome was the center of, uh, of, of the empire. Jewish Christians who lived in Rome, there were 50,000 Jews living in Rome at this time, that is what is recorded, went back to Rome and they started a church. Um, by AD 49, though, there was real trouble in Rome. The emperor was the Emperor Claudius, of the fame of I, Claudius, if you've ever seen the program on the television. In AD 49, he expelled all the Jews from Rome. Christian Jews and, and, and Jews who were Orthodox Jews. Now, the Roman historian of the time says this expulsion in AD 49 was as at the instigation of Crestus. Most Christians believe that what they're talking about is riots because of the Christ. Now, you might think that's a long, long whatever. Read Acts. Everywhere Paul went, he went to synagogues, but he stirred up trouble. How Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian? Well, you don't need to follow that anymore. You need to do this. You know, this is what's really important. And, and actually, there were riots and there were troubles among the Jews. Now, Claudius wouldn't understand all this, but all the Jews were evicted from Rome. We know two of them were Christians, at least. There'd be many others. They were called Aquila and Priscilla. And you can read about them in Acts chapter 18. They lived at Corinth. Corinth was where the, uh, the letter to Rome was written from. And guess who was staying with Priscilla and Aquila? Roman Christians, Paul. Uh, this all might sound very complicated, but it gives us an understanding when we read these things that this is a real issue that's happening. Now, in AD 54, Claudius died. And in AD 55, all the Jews were allowed to come back to Rome. What do you think had happened to the church in those five years? <laughs> no longer Jewish leaders, no longer Jewish culture. <laughs> the early church, which had, had kept the law, which had you know, kept the Jewish feasts and all the rest of it. It would be a bit like us all leaving this church and maybe another, another um, nationality had taken over a bit more John Thorpe and suddenly we come in and it's a completely different culture. They're coming back into a church being led by Gentiles. <laughs> having been Jewish Christians in charge. 
And, you know, that's a challenge for them. Yes, in AD 50, whilst they were away, there was this Council of Jerusalem uh, that concluded that Gentile Christians didn't need to follow the law anymore, didn't need to become Jews to be fully accepted in the church. But certainly, it took time for that to filter through into the church itself. The first 15 leaders of the church in Jerusalem, as is recorded by church history, were all members of the circumcision. I don't know how many generations that is, <laughs> but you think about it. It's a lot. During this time that this letter is written, the temple still exists. Sacrifice is still going on. Israel still exists as a nation at this time. The temple has not been destroyed until AD 70. There are still Jews coming and going to the temple where they felt God lived and you know, having to come to terms with their own culture and their own background and everything that they've been taught about God and suddenly take on this Christian thing too. And it was a challenge. A challenge. So we've got Paul going to uh, synagogues first. We've got this tension that happened in the Jewish communities when he went to places. And we've got more and more Gentiles coming into the church. This was a live debate when this letter was written. How Jewish should Christians be? Uh, and, and, and Paul is trying to address some of those issues in his letters. Um, it didn't happen, as I said, overnight. So Paul's argument in chapters 9 and it, Romans 9 to 11 is that God hasn't finished with the Jewish nation. You uh, might feel quite conceited and quite pleased with yourselves, Gentile believers, about all God's doing for you. But God hasn't finished with Israel. Don't write them off. The true Israel that is rooted in covenant with God... Uh, that, con that that covenant is based on faith in God, that goes back to Abraham, rather than in rules and regulations, God still has a plan and a purpose for. And God is building a people that is far beyond, that doesn't exclude the Jews from his plans. I want to make four points on this passage of scripture that we've got today. And I'm starting at the end with this wonderful uh, doxology, verse 33 to 36. It's a song. A doxology is a song of praise. And basically the first point I want to make is that God's ways and wisdom are beyond our understanding. And at the end of these three chapters, when he's trying to battle with the grafting in and the this, that and the other and how it's all worked out and what's been happening between, you know, Jews and Gentiles and trying to explain it all. Paul gets to the end of himself and says, in the end, <laughs> God is beyond all this. This is really, um, you know, his ways are not our ways, as, as Isaiah 55 says. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He talks about this mystery that has been revealed to him. A mystery because, you know, it's beyond human understanding. And, you know, down the ages, let's be blunt with you, the good and the great and the not so good and not so great have come up with their revelations and ideas and, and of teachings around the end times and what this all means and all the stuff. And people spend hours and hours read books and books and all the stuff on, frankly, stuff that is beyond our ken. It'll all pan out in the end. It'll all end up 
you know, God will do his, his thing in his way in the end. You know, um, oh, do you know they, since I've been a Christian, how many antichrists have we had? How many people are going to be the Antichrist? You know, when's going to happen when? And what's doing what? And, and books and CDs and TV programs. It's all out there, isn't it? And so often they've been wrong. And nobody's ever said sorry. We just write the next book. And gullible Christians buy them. You know, there are some things we just don't know. There are some things that aren't clear. And Paul's response to stuff that is beyond us should be the same as ours. Things that are beyond our capacity to understand or fathom. And it's not, it's not for us to kind of question or query God. God is bigger. He's better. And he's beyond us. Our response is to acknowledge God as God. Beyond us. And worship. Now Paul isn't worshipping God at the end of this passage, these three chapters, because he's worked everything out. As one theologian said, there are no neat answers to baffling questions. He's worshipping God because God is worth our worship. We don't have all the answers. We don't know everything. And at the end, you know, of this, of this wonderful hymn of praise about the wonder of God beyond our knowledge, beyond our understanding, you know, who can know the mind of God? Who has ever been his counselor? Who's ever given him advice on, on everything? We read this verse that for, from him and through him and for him are all things. I mean, it's just a sense of God in all. Everything coming from God. Uh, everything living by God. Everything ending with God. God being the beginning and end of everything. The origin, the sustainer, and the giver of life. I think it's worthwhile remembering all that when we come to the start of this passage. And even some of the challenges through all this passage of Romans 9 to 11. My second point. First thing is God is beyond our understanding. We are called to worship what we don't understand at times. God's will and purpose is not thwarted by our disobedience. If you read those first verses of chapter 20, uh, 11, verse, verses 25 to 32, you'll find that God is not being thrown off course because humans are disobedient or make a mess of things. He doesn't alter his plans because, because of us. Basically, Paul is saying God is still in control of history. Now, that seems really challenging to us when we consider the terrible things that man has done and is doing in our world today. But here we read words like hardening, godlessness, sins, enemies of God, disobedience. <laughs> and Paul says, our hardness... Our disobedience, our godlessness, our sinfulness is not the end of the story. story. Through it all and in it all, God is at work to see his purposes fulfilled. He's, in work, he's at work in the mess of life. The problem with us as humans is we like tidy answers. We don't like mess. We don't like the unknown things. We don't like... Something over there that we don't quite understand. We want to order it all. And we want to sort it all out. And we want to make sense of it all in some rational way. God actually has a bigger picture. 
And this is what he's saying here. The bigger picture of history is not the now that we see. We see through a very, very narrow window into the future. But God has a bigger picture and is at work. And fundamentally, he's still on the throne. The third point of all this is that God wants to bring people together, not separate them. There's words like all being used here. Fullness, completeness. Paul is battling forces at work to try to divide the church. Values around tradition, culture, law, and practice. And we've had it from Erica last week. You know, he's seeking to, to teach that the fact that these two plants can be joined together. That different doesn't mean better necessarily or worse. The Jews were insistent that the Gentiles needed to conform. They needed to pick up the Jewish thing. And, you know, I've loved the testimonies this morning. But I was going to reflect on the fact that, you know, when I became a Christian at Hollybush, really, really exciting days. Not saying it was, um, you know, particularly always easy, but we knew the presence of God. We saw miracles. We saw people coming to, to God. There was an anticipation in the atmosphere when you went to these places. But it was pretty clear to me that I didn't fit in when I arrived. My Levi jackets with the peace sign, uh, my long hair, uh, my love of rock music, uh, my, my views of playing football on a Sunday, um, you know, were all considered to be, this is not what you do as Christians. You observe Sunday of things. You have short hair. You wear decent clothes. Obviously, you don't drink alcohol. A whole list of things were all around what we did to conform to the church. Um, and it's interesting. <laughs> because actually, if you didn't conform, it was pretty evident in a good old Pentecostal terms, it wasn't really approved of. I remember one day my wife going to a meeting um, it wasn't even a church meeting, so don't worry. It was just an, an afternoon, Sunday afternoon, and she took her knitting with her. And it nearly caused apoplexy. <laughs> this is the church we were brought up in. You may laugh, but this is the church we were brought up in, wasn't it? I mean, a lot of us, those oldies, we, we knew what it was to actually to do this. And, and, and the whole thing about, about the way we put, can put pressure on people to say, well, our culture is best. The songs we sing here is best. The way we worship God, God is best because actually, obviously, this is how God likes it. You know, in fact, it's got nothing. It's nothing like the early church. How we do church here today is irrelevant. You know, because this is how God likes it our way, and therefore our way is the right way. And then if somebody does something different, or we have a different style of music, or I mean, I was brought up in a church where, oh, that's not anointed, you know, if you sang something like that. Oh, there's no anointing on that, you know, because it's not, you know, because obviously everyone in the Bible used to have a tambourine and a piano accordion at Hollybush, and that's, that's how we were brought up. And if they didn't, then obviously, you know, the, the, the Spirit of God wasn't at work. And the battle we still have as a church is to try to tell everyone we should all be the same. And we are the ones who are enforcing what the same should look like. 
the ones in power. <laughs> One point it was the Jewish Christians in Rome, suddenly it's the Gentile Christians in Rome. And they're both kind of asserting a sense of what they, sh what they should be like. It's a clash of culture, a clash of the way we do things. But God calls us with our differences, with our distinctions, with our cultural challenges. And God will have a people, Revelation makes it clear, from every tongue, from every tribe, from every people group. And the marvelous picture in Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 is that all these people around the throne of God, worshipping God together. A bit like Pentecost, when they hear the praises of God in their own tongue, everyone in heaven is praising God in their own tongue, <laughs> in their own way. And God says, it's good. It's good that we're different in this place. We need to embrace difference. We need to embrace different cultures. We need to embrace different ways of doing things. And understand that there isn't a monoculture that is Christian. It's a danger. We have to do everything the same way all the time. And those of you who travel will know that church in different countries is very different from the church that we have here. And God is still on the throne in all those places too. Paul's saying, come on, grow up. Grow up together. Grow up as one. And the fourth point. God doesn't give up on us, even when we give up on him. Now, to the Gentile Christians at this time, the Jews were often the enemy. Paul himself was subject to hatred, a hate campaign, persecution from his own people, who thought he'd betrayed his culture and his roots. He wasn't the only one. But just as Paul has not given up on the Jews, neither has God. Just as Paul, as God doesn't give up on us <laughs> as well. All Israel will be saved, verse 26. 11 verse 1, God did not reject his people. Now, I don't think this means, and most commentators would agree, I think nearly all of them would say, that every Jew is going to become a Christian at all. You know, it means that the whole gamut of Jewish society, God is going to infiltrate by his presence and by his word. Now, the thing is, you see, I haven't a clue what when the, the fullness of the Gentiles means. I mean, I think it means that, you know, when, when <laughs> it doesn't mean 144,000 or something like that. But, you know, there's an essence where God is saying, in my time and in my purpose, people from across this world will be saved. And this includes the Jews. And, you know, we've often tried to replace that verse and say, oh, it's a spiritual. That's a spiritual verse. But actually, if verse, um, if verse 25 is a, sorry, if, let me just get the right place here. Um, if verse 26 is a spiritual verse, then it doesn't make sense of verse 25 when Israel has experienced the hardening in part, same word used, so the Gentiles can come in. The opposition that was happening by the Jewish people Israel is the same. And actually, those who are... I know that some reformers had a different view on this, but believe me, most commentators today would say, you can't just take that out of context. All Israel will be saved. Now, people don't understand what that means. 
Because we haven't seen it yet, have we? It doesn't mean that Jews will be saved outside of Christ. <laughs> it doesn't mean that their Jewishness will save them, their culture, their law, the way they've done it. They need to come to God. In fact, you know, Paul makes it clear earlier on when he says that not all Israel, uh, you know, is, is Israel. Which is a very strange verse in itself. Um, I've got it somewhere in my notes here. I'll come to it in a minute. But it's not a spiritual Israel. If it was a spiritual Israel, there would be no mystery in this. Because actually, if it was about the church coming to God, well, Paul's already made that clear. <laughs> you know, that the church is, is, is God's people. There's no mystery in suddenly saying, by the way, in case you didn't know it, we're now the new Israel and we're God's people. He's actually talking about a physical revival that's going to happen in Israel. Suck it up. <laughs> This is what the word of God says. Jews are going to come to faith. And why not? Chinese have come to faith. <laughs> you know? um, Saudi Arabians have come for faith, we heard this morning. People from across the world have come to faith. Why do we have problems with the thought that Jews might come to faith too? Because I don't. And this is part of what Paul is saying. He says it's a mystery. I don't understand it all. But actually, this is what's happening. Paul tells us that this is what God has revealed to him. That the Jews will turn to Christ as Lord and Messiah. Why? And he goes back to covenant. He says God has made a commitment. Verse 28 and verse 29. A, secure, a covenant was a secure, firm promise that God made. When God commits himself to, to people. And he... And, and Paul makes it clear he doesn't go back on that promise. And Paul refers to a covenant with the patriarchs. He's talking to the covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac, um, the father of the faith. Um, 11 verse 28. All, and this, this covenant had three sort of ideas to it. One is that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. They have been. <laughs> Not just the Jews. The whole world. Genesis 12 verse 3. The second was it was an everlasting covenant. If it's everlasting, it didn't finish at the cross or the resurrection. The third point is that um, we believe that it was based on faith. Genesis 15 verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a covenant based on faith not on rules and regulations and laws. And that is the covenant that Paul refers to. He always goes back to Abraham as opposed to the, the law. And he says, God's gifts and calls are irrevocable. Now, I've heard that said of a people so many times, but the context is about Israel and about the covenant that was made with the, with the patriarchs. That God doesn't change his mind that he is unchanging. He doesn't give up on us. Even when we give up on people. Even when we give up on ourselves. Even when we give up on others. Particularly our enemies. People who are persecuting us. People who are coming against us. Like the Jews were coming against these Gentile believers. And against Jewish Christians at this time. God says love your enemies. God says Pray for your enemies. God says, just because you're struggling with them, I've still got plans and purposes for these people. Yeah. There is hope. 
in our families, there is hope. For those who've rejected Jesus, who once considered themselves part of God's family, who perhaps now are sinful, godless, disobedient, and hardened to God, there is hope. Don't give up on your families. Don't give up on your friends. Don't give up on yourself. This story tells me that God doesn't give up on all peoples, including his own people who have turned their back on him. God doesn't give up. We give up. We find it so disheartening when things aren't working out, when people aren't showing any interest. You know, I'm not saying that everyone in our families are going to become Christians, but I am saying that however dark and however desperate and however degenerate situations might look, don't give up. We may not always understand. We may at sometimes have to just worship God and say, I just haven't a clue how your plan of salvation is going to work out. What the fullness of the Gentiles means, I just know I've been sent to the world. I don't have a clue, you know, what it means about all Israel being saved particularly, but I know that you still have a plan and purpose for Israel. And I'm going to say, thank you, Lord. You, you are beyond my thoughts. Your ways are beyond my ways, but I have hope in you. Even in the most desperate situations. And if that can work in that situation, then God, I've got to bring my life in its darkness and its desperation and, in, and, and its pain about the, 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 the struggles I have with people who seem to be at enmity with you and at enmity with me. But there is still hope for them. There is still hope in Jesus for them. And I'm going to cling on to that hope until you come. And I'm going to worship you despite the fact I don't see it happening. And I'm going to just honor you as a God beyond the circumstances of life, even though I don't see it happening now, because you are still worthy of my worship, my praise, and my honor. And that's what Paul's saying. I've been beaten by these people. I've been spat at. I've been stoned. I've been kicked out of, of synagogues. I've been chucked out of cities. I've been left for dead. But I still believe in God. I believe in a God who's more powerful than everything that's been chucked at me. And I believe the plan of God is greater than anything I can understand in my own life. To God be the glory. Amen.